0: Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Once again, God's holy and inspired word. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As for the reading of God's word... May he bless it to us. Let us pray. So, do you get seasick? And if so, how bad does it hit you? Well, some of us are not affected by the waves, and others may not have spent any time on a boat to know or not. But if you do get seasick or have witnessed someone with a nasty case of it, then you know how miserable it can be. Even if you're dark have a dark complexion. You get pasty, your head will spin, your stomach does somersaults, and you are stuck at the railing as a fountain to feed the fish. Yes, seasick can be the worst. And this makes it a fairly apt analogy for our life. For as the poets like to express, life is a voyage across the deep blue. And on this lifeboat, squalls rock our ships, Waves of anxiety slam into us, hurricanes and tsunamis rage to capsize us, leaving us nauseous and vomitous on the, at the rail. Yes, the inclement weather of the rough seas exposes our need for an anchor to steady us and to prevent us from blowing off course. What then is our anchor on this voyage of our faith? Well, Hebrews applies to our souls a beautiful anchor for an extra strength, comfort. So last week we saw that Hebrews set before us a stern warning about committing a sacrilege against the Son of God to return to a Christless religion under the shadows of the law. And if this warning sent a shiver down your soul, then you're in a good place. For those who actually perpetuate this grievous sin, their conscience is generally unfeeling and their heart is cast iron. So, to pull back from this heinous apostasy is itself evidence of faith in your heart, of the Spirit's wonderful influence upon you. Thus, in light of this lethal spiritual danger, the author then called us to imitate those who inherit the promises by faith and patience. We are to press on, trusting in Jesus, and to keep uh, the faith with a patient endurance. Though if you're called to imitate, to follow an example, it is kind of helpful to know who you are to imitate. Who is the model to whom we are to conform? Well, we're not kept in suspense, as now Hebrews drops an exemplar for us. God promised Abraham. When it comes to an inheriting promises by faith and patience, Abraham is the blueprint. Moreover, by this simple line, we are whisked back to the sagas of Genesis. The timeless and Oscar-winning movie of Abraham gets replayed in our minds. For God, pr- making promises to Abraham is basically every chapter of Genesis from chapter 12 to chapter 25. Indeed, the Lord lavished upon the patriarch decadent promises. As you'll remember, he pledged to grant him the land of promise, a great name, to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. God also assured Abraham that a great nation from would issue from him even kings and queens, princes and princesses. So vast would be Abraham's offspring that they would outnumber the stars of the heavens and even the grains of sand on the ocean's beach. Abraham's bag of divine promises was bursting at the seams and overflowing. And yet this undeserved generosity wasn't enough for God. He wanted to rain more down, more grace down upon Abraham, and so he added to his promises an oath. Now a promise is generally an informal word of commitment to one another. A promise kindly agrees to feed your neighbor's cat while they're on vacation. But no fanfare or special treatment is required for a promise. You don't have to get dressed up or perform a ritual for a promise. You can promise in your sweatpants on the couch or on the beach in your swimsuit. An oath, though, makes things get serious. An oath summons the attorneys, the notary, and a stack of heavy legal papers needing your John Hancock. Yes, an oath puts serious skin in the game. Break an oath, and there are consequences. Fines, jail time, and in ancient times, particularly death. Yes, to violate an oath costs you your life. This is why oaths then were sworn in the name of someone greater. You need a greater authority to witness and guarantee the oath, and especially to execute the punishment if the oath was broken. Thus, oaths were sworn in the name of great authorities, kings, nobles, but most normally the gods. Divine power was invoked in the oath to seal it. Well, in reality, there is only one God, true and everlasting, and if the Almighty is going to swear, there is none other greater than him, so God swears by his own name. Yahweh swore oaths by his very life, infinite and eternal. Yet by citing this oath of the Lord, Hebrews narrows our focus to a single story or single chapter in the great story of Abraham to Genesis 22 after Isaac was nearly sacrificed. The previous chapters in Genesis are littered with promises, but this is the first official oath that God granted to Abraham. For passing the test with Isaac, Yahweh sealed upon Abraham an imperishable certainty. He said, I will bless you and multiply you. If God broke his oath, then he would have to die, which is an impossible impossibility. Hence, with the divine oath, Abraham obtained a promise. This oath, in Genesis 22, by it the Lord granted Abraham an inherited promise. And yet, what promise did Abraham taste at this moment? Well, he didn't have the land yet. Abraham wasn't close to being a nation. His quiver wasn't even full of kiddos yet. So what did Abraham get under this Christmas tree of an oath? Well, he got Isaac. More so, Abraham received Isaac as if back from the dead. Abraham had another son, Ishmael, but he wasn't the boy of promise. Also, hard provinces can steal our kids away from us by tragic deaths. How could Abraham be certain that Isaac was the promised heir and that Isaac would not die young? Well, God's oath certified beyond, beyond the shadow of a doubt that Isaac, figuratively resurrected, was the son. The Lord provided a ram to rescue Isaac from the knife. How much more, then, would God preserve Isaac to fulfill every last grandiose covenant promise? By the oath, Abraham received a promise of God, a son back from the dead. Yet the author underscores that Abraham got this promise having been patient. Imitating patient faith is, after all, the summons before us. So Abraham enjoyed this inheritance after being patient. Indeed, ponder for a minute what Abraham's patience entailed. In Genesis 22, we we are not told the age of Isaac, just that he was a young lad. So maybe he's about 10 years old. But when did Abraham first hear of this promise? Well, it was back in Genesis 12 when Abraham was still a Sprite 75. This means Abraham waited 35 years. He had to wait over three decades for God to fulfill his promise. And this was not easy waiting. For 25 years, he and and Sarah tried to conceive a child, but to no avail. Abraham endured famines and flights to Egypt, conflicts and treaties with Abimelech. He had to fight a war to get Lot back. Abraham and Sarah tried surrogacy for Ishmael, but that didn't work. Long, hot years as nomads in a land where everyone else saw him as a foreigner. This was the hard bench in which Abraham's faith waited upon. Who knows how many times he and Sarah, in their tent, argued about going back to their family in Aram. And yet, the faith of Abraham remained patient. He kept waiting upon Yahweh and trust, even when it all seemed hopeless. This is the patience of faith that's a model for us. To wait upon God, particularly when he seems slow and dragging his feet. This is a noble and beautiful patience that calls to us. It is a good that magnetically attracts us, It's a striking and comely grace that stirs up our desire for it. And yet as stunning as the patient faith of Abraham is, this is not where the author keeps our eye. Instead, he spotlights the object of Abraham's faith, the foundation of his patience, God's oath. Thus he quickly takes us back to the basics to remind us what an oath is and its inherent power. And there's two elements in any oath. First, people swear by someone who is greater, most typically the gods or a divinity. This means that the oath channels a divine power which is not restricted by time, jurisdiction, or limitation. Kings can have wildly impressive power, but kings don't know everything. They have boundaries to their kingdoms, and they die like every other human. An oath in a king's name is limited by his very humanity, but not so with the divine. A god knows all things, does not die, and a god can get you no matter where you run to. You cannot hide or trick divine power. Second, an oath is uh, finalized all disputes. It has definitive legal power. That is, in a court, if you were accused of some crime without sufficient evidence for a conviction, you could take an oath, and the trial was over. You went free. The oath transferred the case from the human court to the heavenly tribunal. The oath was the end of the court case, and the human judges or accusers could not touch you, for the oath put you in the hands of the gods. This is the horsepower of the oath. And this customary use of oaths was basically natural law. This is how oaths functioned in the Old Testament, in ancient Egypt, in Babylon, in Greek and Roman culture. The power of the oath was common sense to ancient peoples. It was like the law of gravity. Everyone lived by it. And so to accommodate to us, the Lord has a way of taking things that are common and universal and cranking them up for his holy and unique purposes, which he does here. Thus it says next that the Lord desired, he wanted to, give supreme proof. It was God's good pleasure to exhibit the certainty of his truth. This is the Lord's kind and generous accommodation to us humans. For surely God didn't need evidence that his promise was firm, but us weak of faith and skeptical humans did need it. So the Lord wanted to help us. He longed to booster what was frail in us. And so he wanted to prove to us the unchangeable character of his purpose. The Lord's purpose is his plan and his design. It's his eternal counsel to bring about our redemption set before the foundation of the world. And the amazing feature of his purpose that God wanted to show off to us is that it's unchangeable. The Lord's plan is immutable, ever fixed, permanent, and solid. When it comes to making plans, we... "...are famously fickle. We change our minds, we alter our itineraries, and we retract our commitments. We say things that we never intend to do, but not so with God. His purpose is unchangeable and irrevocable. His plan cannot be cancelled or thwarted. There's no editing privileges to the divine purpose." And to showcase the permanence of his plan for us, he guaranteed it with an oath. The divine plan is his promise, while the oath is an additional layer of surety. The oath has a double confirming power. It seals the deal with an unalterable certainty. Thus the Lord proved his unchangeable plan with an oath in order to help us and our frail faith that walks patiently through the decades. God's proof is aimed at allaying our doubts, curing the cancer of skepticism within us, and refueling the tank of our patience. You see, the Lord understands that the frame of our faith is shaky. And so he firms it up by two unchangeable things. He hands hands us two imperishable facts to placard the glory that God cannot lie. The first unchangeable fact is, of course, God's promise. The Lord is not a human to renege on his promise. He doesn't promise with his fingers crossed behind his back. No, God's promises are uh, uh, infallible and unfailing. Yet to seal his promise with to As extra sure, the Lord added a solemn and self-cursing oath. The Lord put himself under legal consequences if he wasn't true to his word. In his oath, the Lord is saying to us that he would die before he broke his promise to us. And such is the indestructible foundation for our faith. It is the immortal and ageless footing of, of our patience, indeed, the Lord provides this double certainty for the heirs of the promise. It's for us who are spiritual children of Abraham. As for Father Abraham, the Lord publishes promises of salvation to us. He worked faith in us by the Spirit and the Word, and now to give us better health to our faith, He issues a double proof of his unfading truthfulness. This, then, gives us a strong encouragement, a mighty comfort. Here, the author pairs two things that don't normally fit together. For comfort and encouragement are gentle and soft. Comfort is the delicate hug, the warm pillow, the velvety fabric that doesn't irritate the most sensitive skin. Strong, however, is Damascus forged steel. It is the rock-hard muscled arm, the calloused hand, the steel-toed boot. So Hebrews mixes together the soft pillow and the hardness of oak to impart God's muscular comfort, his superman gentleness, his explosive encouragement. This is the high-octane double shot of espresso, of comfort, And this mighty gentleness of God is for us who have fled to him for refuge. It is for those who have grabbed on to the hope that is set before us. And the author hands us here another remarkable image. For to flee for refuge is pulled from the Old Testament and its cities of refuge and asylum. That is, in the Old Testament, if you were in legal trouble, you could run to one of the designated asylum cities. And as long as you remained in that city, you were safe from prosecution. And yet the original place of asylum was to grab hold of the horns of the altar. You held onto the altar horns to find refuge from punishment within God's own sanctuary. Thus, verse 18 says, we have fled for refuge to grab hold of. But then he replaces the altar with hope. We hold fast to the holy horns of hope. The Sabbath rest of heaven, promised and sworn to by God, is the altar of our asylum, our castle of refuge and safety. And he expands the imagery. This refuge of hope is also our sure and steadfast anchor. We grip tightly on hope, or as we do, we possess a fixed and stable anchor. And anchors, by definition, provide stability upon the high seas. The anchor protects against currents that would carry you off. The anchor holds tight to the seabed to parry the cresting waves. Anchors provide stability and safety upon the turbulent waters of life. And the anchor given to us to hold hold safe is for our souls. That is, this anchor is not a guarantee against sickness, opposition, or even death. No, our bodies may get quite the beating upon the storms on the surface, but our souls remain safe and secure. Yet note where our anchor holds. The anchor of hope hope, has entered into the inner place behind the curtain, which refers to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. This was the supremely holy room that housed the Ark. Moreover, the Holy of Holies corresponded to God's heavenly throne room. The highest heaven of God's surpassing glory was represented by the Holy of Holies within the Tabernacle. Thus, our anchor is not biting into the dark and deep places of the ocean. No, it rather digs into the holy soil of God's throne room. On the ocean floor, you cannot see what your anchor has grabbed onto. It could be merely dragging on loose sand or caught in a tangle of seaweed, neither of which is very stable. But in heaven, within the most sacred realm above, our anchor is welded to the foot of God's throne. And this skyrockets the power of the refuge. To grab hold of the altar's horns was of the bronze altar out in the courtyard. But to have your anchor inside the Holy of Holies is to grab hold of the ark. It's to grab hold of the untouchable and the most holy. In the Old Testament, to touch the ark brought immediate and terrible death. But here, by our anchored hope, we touch the supremely holy for security and safety upon the ocean waves of life. Of course, the question arises, How does our hope penetrate the heavenly holy of holies? How can our sinful fingers touch the ark? How can our anchor reach into the imperishable stability of the world above? Well, the author answers these questions easily. Our hope is anchored behind the curtain where Jesus went for us. As our forever Melchizedek priest Jesus himself stepped behind the curtain. And clearly the inner sanctuary where Christ ministered was not the little room of the earthly Jerusalem temple. No, the temple in Jerusalem was but a picture and model of the heavenly. And Jesus ministered in the reality above. By his blood and righteousness, Jesus won full atonement for you for all of your sins. And he did so in the heavenly Jerusalem. Christ, then, is the solid rock upon which our anchor is fixed. Indeed, the author links together by an unbreakable chain our refuge to our hope, our hope to our anchor in heaven, and our anchor to Jesus Christ himself. Likewise, in Christ, the two unchangeable facts come to full expression. The promise to Christ to be our Savior is guaranteed by the everlasting oath to ratify Jesus as our forever priest. Furthermore, Jesus trailblazed the way into the heavenly sanctuary as our forerunner. Forerunners go first to open the way for others to follow in his tracks. Jesus went first in order to bring us where he is, which is the essence of our anchored hope. To combine the image of an anchor and a forerunner paints for us the picture that Jesus is our anchor and he's slowly reeling us in. Christ is pulling in the chain that connects us to him to bring us to his very self. And it is this reality that gives your faith an imperishable and irrevocable grounding. Christ being our anchor fills our patience with a double shot of comfort and encouragement. For as you know, waiting is not easy. We are naturally an impatient people. Our clocks are hasty compared to God. And if you have to wait for something and that something is uncertain, we often give up quickly. If you're waiting with a flat tire on the side of the road for a truck that just might show up, then you quickly start looking for other help. We do not wait for maybes or possibilities. Our patience soon evaporates for a shot in the dark or a lucky chance. But if your hope of salvation is certain, irrevocable, in the very oath of God, then waiting is doable. Patience is possible. So then, as a gift of grace and encouragement, your hope, brothers and sisters, is anchored in Jesus Christ, who is in heaven. This is the strength of your patience within this turbulent world. This is God's loving power to keep your faith rooted in Christ and the double proof of his oath. For being anchored to Christ in heaven, this is your anti-nauseous medication. When dizziness hits your faith, when queasiness plagues your patience. So then, for a mighty comfort, let us hold fast to Christ. May we not doubt the immutable words of God. And with the heavenly Dramamine of Jesus, let us sing. Let us praise the Lord, giving him all the thanksgiving through our lives now and forevermore. For as we are found in Christ, he is ours and we are his forever. Amen.